Welcome to the Chiropractors Association of Australia podcast. The CAA is the peak body representing chiropractors in Australia. Hosted by Dr. Anthony Coxon, these podcasts explore the science, art, philosophy and politics of chiropractic, as well as the latest research and how chiropractors can strive for excellence in practice. Well, hello everyone and welcome back to the Chiropractors Association of Australia podcast. Today's podcast is all about scoliosis and in particular managing the degenerative scoliosis. I've got on the line with me and uh, if you you were at the CEA conference you would have been lucky enough to hear this uh, particular gentleman, uh, Dr. Uh, Jeb McKiveney. Now Jeb is a dedicated scoliosis clinician and researcher who holds a Masters of Chiropractic and Masters of Pain Medicine. Uh, he's also the director of Scolicare, which is a dedicated scoliosis treatment centres in Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane and Adelaide. He's internationally recognised as a speaker, presenting in over 15 countries. He's published research in JMPT and is a reviewer for the European Spine Journal and Scoliosis and Spinal Disorders Journal. So uh, he really is the resident expert in the chiropractic profession on scoliosis in this country. Jeb, uh, thanks for joining us on the CA podcast. Thanks, Anthony, and congratulations on election to your new position as our president. Oh, thank you very much. Well, we both had very big weekends at the AGM conference, and one of the reasons that I'm really excited to speak uh, with you today is because I was um, holed up in meetings while you were doing your presentation, and I missed the opportunity to hear you talk. So, um, so I'm going to be listening with uh, very attentive ears today. Fantastic. Now, let's start at the beginning. Uh, there's, uh, scoliosis is obviously something that all chiropractors have some level of interest in. Uh, you've taken it to the, uh, the other level altogether. How is it that you became involved with scoliosis? So my, uh, my father, Ken McAvee, is a chiropractor. And um, it's really through um, his interest in scoliosis that, that piqued my own. I grew up um, around the chiropractic clinic and seeing him work with uh, scoliosis patients and using his skills as a chiropractor is what you know, initially um, inspired me in the field. Um, and then after graduating from the chiropractic degree at Macquarie, I, I continued to study some different um, rehab techniques and eventually got involved in scoliosis racing. Um, and it really just opened up a, a whole new world to me that from um, my background purely as a chiropractor, you know, I didn't really have a lot of knowledge and you know, getting involved in some of the scientific societies and understanding, you know, the best evidence for treatment, you know, it really just uh, sparked my interest and, and grew my knowledge from there. So when most practitioners think of scoliosis, they usually think of adolescent girls, uh, and obviously that's a you know an age group where at least the monitoring of scoliosis is very important. Give us a, a snapshot of the condition. Uh, when is it likely to be most progressive, and indeed, when is it likely to be most painful and debilitating? So, Anthony, you're, you're absolutely right. Most um, practitioners, chiropractors, when they think about scoliosis, um, think about um, adolescent idiopathic scoliosis or AIS. Um, and that's because it's what we most commonly treat. Um, what most of us don't realize is that um, scoliosis, and in particular adult degenerative scoliosis, it's in adults that it's most common. Um, 
But in regards to adolescent idiopathic scoliosis, um, which is what we mainly clinically see as chiropractors or recognise, um, it mainly occurs in teenage girls. Um, it usually starts around the onset of their menstruation. And, and it's important to think about um, the beginning of the growth period rather than a certain age, um, because it's the growth that drives the scoliosis. Um, for example, when we measure the height of the children when we're doing scoliosis treatment, we often measure their sitting height and look at that over time so that we can see as that trunk grows, what impact is that having on their scoliosis because it's an, you know, somewhat an indirect measure of their spinal growth. Um, so really in teenagers, yeah, more common in girls, they, they do tend to get some pain. Um, it is under-recognized. You know, we think of scoliosis generally as a non-painful condition, um, but they do usually present with one to two out of 10 low-grade chronic pain around the apex of the curve. There's actually a fantastic study that was published in the Spine Journal, um, the top spine journal in the world by a chiropractor, uh, Dr. Jean Theroux, um, originally from Montreal, um, but now actually working in the Department of Chiropractic at Murdoch University. And they found that low-grade chronic pain was really common in teenagers, particularly teenage girls. But the good news was that by having treatment, if they used a brace, for example, it actually helped their pain um, as well as helping their scoliosis. In, go on. Sorry, I was just going to say that for, for, for our listeners, uh, I'll make sure that you send that uh, study across to me and, we'll, and when this podcast is sent out, we'll, we'll uh, get a link to that study because that sounds like a, a sort of study all chiropractors should be reading. Yeah, absolutely. Um, because there's a, there's a lot of misinformation out there about scoliosis and pain. Um, you know, we're often taught that it doesn't cause pain, but in adults, for example, it's the number one reason that they seek treatment. They're coming in because they have, you know, chronic pain, usually stenotic type of symptoms. They have disability associated with that. They're unable to walk or do their gardening, those type of things. And because we don't often equate the pain to scoliosis, it goes underdiagnosed that the scoliosis is a cause of their pain. Mm. Um, so it's a, it's a really important aspect, but you know, it's not the whole thing, obviously, quality of life and how the patient looks and whether that curve is going to progress or not are important factors as well. So I guess as a day-to-day -day chiropractor, we'll see some level of uh, curvature in, I would say, the majority of our, of our patients, or asymmetry at least. At what point or at what degree does the chiropractor need to consider special management for scoliosis as opposed to something that's just um, going to be managed as though they had a, you know, a reasonably sym symmetrical spine? So 20 degrees seems to be the magic number. Um, when we look at it in children, um, curvatures below 20 degrees may or may not progress. Of course, you know, every 50 or 60 degree scoliosis at one point in time, you know, was 20 degrees, but there are also lots of curvatures around you know, 12, 13, 14 degrees that never did end up getting worse. Yeah. And so this is that area where, you know, it's, it's okay to perhaps observe the patient um, to treat with our standard chiropractic manual therapy type treatments. But once the curve starts getting up above 20 degrees, that's when we really have to, you know, be thinking, is this the type of curvature that's likely to progress? Um, in adults, it's a little bit different because they don't have the growth 
that's driving progression of the curve. So usually it's when the curve is already bigger if they had it as a teenager. And if that curve is at that sort of 40, 50 degree mark, it might keep getting worse throughout adult life. Um, but then we have a new onset of degenerative adult scoliosis called degenerative de novo scoliosis. And typically when those curves are starting to get up above 30 degrees, we start to see some rapid deterioration um, when it's in that elderly population, you know, over 70 years of age, for example. And I assume you're using sort of standard Cobb angles to, to measure the scoliosis? Yeah, we are. So the, the Cobb angle is um, obviously the gold standard on how we measure it. There are other techniques out there that maybe show a little less um, error in them. Um, however, like the Rizzo Ferguson method, for example, but they're, they're not comparable to the Cobb. Thankfully, with the use of um, digital software, we find that the um, uh, inter-examiner reliability is much higher. And you can also use little cheats, such as on the iPhone, there's a, a nice little um, tilt meter in the compass menu yeah. um, that you can use. We actually put together a, um, a little tutorial on a website, and it's not commercial, if you're happy for me to mention the name. Of course. Um, it's www.howtomeasurecob.com and it's just a little video of me explaining on how you do it manually, how you do it using the software or how you can use a little cheat such as the uh, iPhone. Well, I certainly having used, used both uh, skin marking pencils back in the day and uh, digital um, devices uh, more recently, the, uh, the digital devices are considerably uh, easier and more accurate, I would have thought. Yeah, they, they do. You know, every line that you draw with a pencil adds one to two degrees of error. So if you're drawing four lines, then you can imagine then that error measurement goes up. So just by doing it digitally certainly does reduce the um, error measurement. So there's obviously there's two categories here, um, you know, the adolescent and the, and the adult scoliosis. What, what sort of considerations, you've sort of touched on a few, but uh, speak a little bit more as to how you would approach um, both in terms of examination and perhaps management of a, a, an adolescent versus an adult scoliosis patient? So when an adolescent um, first arrives at your clinic, the first thing you have to be suspicious of is do they have any pathology? Because if they haven't previously been diagnosed, um, you can't assume that they're presenting with idiopathic scoliosis, which means essentially of unknown cause. But what we teach in our courses is another way to look at idiopathic which means that you've ruled out that that patient is presenting with a pathology. And there are some common pathologies that do cause scoliosis, such as syringomyelia, um, spinal cord tumors, neurofibromatosis, and then some neuromuscular um, issues such as Marfan syndrome, and then we can have congenital type of deformities and, and various things. So the, the first thing with adolescence is to establish um, a diagnosis that rules out pathology. Um, once we've ruled out pathology and we're fairly um, happy that there's nothing else going on there, we then need to worry about the risk of progression because if the curve is developing when the child is very young, there is some risk that they can progress to the point where it does have a genuine impact on their heart and their lungs and the quality of life. Mm. Although for that to occur, it has to be a big curve. You know, It has to be up above 100 degrees of curvature, which generally only happens when young children develop a scoliosis in their infantile or juvenile years and it isn't managed properly right. throughout the rest of their growth. Um, for adults, it's a little bit different.
spectrum. You know, the, the risk of adults having heart and lung complications from a new onset of a degenerative scoliosis generally is not there. However, adult scoliosis is much more strongly associated with pain and disability, um, a reduction in the quality of life and a bigger burden on society. And one of the really interesting factors for us is we know that by around about the time of 2040, 2042, one quarter of the Australian population is going to be aged over the age of 65. Mm. And 33% of people aged over the age of 65 have some form of adult scoliosis, either pre-existing or new onset adult degenerative scoliosis. So I think the stats are going to be by then we'll have 7.6 million Australians So it's a, a large proportion of the population that chiropractors will be treating. They are massive numbers there, that's, in, that's for sure. Um, Jeb, you talk about uh, unbalanced and balanced curves. Can you explain what you mean by that? Yeah, absolutely. So when we look at the probably the easiest way is to stay, take a step back and think of posture for a second. And we think of how the torso sits relative to the pelvis. And if my torso was to shift to the left or to the right, a little like an antalgic patient presents. Well, that would represent a coronal imbalance. So if I shifted my torso to the left relative to my pelvis, I would have a left coronal imbalance. The other way, obviously, is to look from the side. So if we look and see if the torso shifted forward or shifted backwards, we would call that sagittal imbalance. And obviously, when the torso is lined up over the pelvis, we call it good balance. Mm. There's a, a lot of research now that's coming out, particularly driven in the surgical arena, that a change in the sagittal balance, particularly when the torso is shifted forward to the pelvis, which is referred to as anterior sagittal balance, is really highly correlated to poor outcomes. So surgeons now are assessing sagittal balance for when they do a, a spinal fusion and making sure the techniques that they use restore that sagittal balance to a good neutral sagittal balance as their surgical outcome. And in scoliosis in particular, we know that it's more highly correlated to pain and disability than the Cobb angle even. So it's a really important concept for us to understand in spine treatment. So in terms of your approach, so this is your, you're talking about obviously the stooped forward sort of posture. Um, is this something that you typically eyeball or do you uh, typically rely on x-rays to, to make your decisions on that? The only valid way of measuring sagittal balance is with a full spine x-ray that you can see from C7 down to the sacrum and including the femoral head. Yes. Um, which uh, obviously, um, you know, in the current uh, climate of things, um, may create some um, issue for us. But if at the end of the day, we're about patient outcomes and getting the best outcome, the, the gold standard for measurement of sagittal balance is just that. It's a full spine lateral x-ray. Yes. Well, I guess in those cases, there is a, an established clinical need that is the important thing. It's not, this is not, we're not talking about the person who is routinely referred off as a matter of course, this is someone who obviously has uh, a lot of the indicators that would suggest that, that type of x-ray is perfectly suitable. 
Exactly. They're not. They're not a patients generally presenting with the first episode of uh, acute low back pain. Yes. Um, and of course, even now, chiropractors can still refer for those if they require that longer view. The patient may just have to, uh, you know, pay pay the difference for that. Indeed. Uh, and just in your experience, uh, I'd imagine there'd be at least some correlation with what you can and, and what you can see on X-ray and what you can see posturally, but maybe if you're looking at subtle changes to that, that the x-ray would be more accurate. Yeah, the, the posture certainly can be a guide. And, you know, and particularly when you're doing your initial assessment, if you see something that looks like there is a sagittal imbalance there, um, it may lead you then as part of your justification for further investigation. The, the tricky part is when we start looking at degenerative scoliosis in particular, um, it's really hard to visualize why that sagittal imbalance has occurred. Mm. Sometimes it can be a loss of the lumbar lordosis. Sometimes we can actually see a, the development of a lumbar kyphosis. And how you would treat those two presentations um, is very different depending on, you know, um, what is, you know, what, what we actually see on the x-ray. And before we go into that next important step in terms of uh, treatment and management of these sorts of things, just to understand a little bit more about the uh, adult progression. You mentioned how um, in the younger children, it's 20 degrees is sort of the, the, the magic number to be uh, concerned about. In adults, uh, it's more like 30 degrees where it's likely to be progressive. What tends to lead to this progression? And is there a, cert is there a certain sort of periods in adult life where uh, progression is more likely to occur? Yeah, so there's some good research that um, suggests that around the time of menopause for women can be a time where a pre-existing um, idiopathic scoliosis from adolescence that was stable may progress. And it also seems to be a time where we see this new onset of adult degenerative or de novo scoliosis um, actually occur. And we're not 100% sure exactly why that happens, but in theory we believe that there is some asymmetrical degeneration usually occurring around the apex of the curvature, and then those hormonal changes um, lead to some instability in the spine. The ligaments aren't holding the spine as well as it used to, the muscle tone is reduced, and with that underlying asymmetric degeneration, we start to see that stability of the, of the spine affected. For, for men, we, we do see something similar occur, but it usually happens much later um, where that natural aging process is really affecting the ligaments and the stability of the spine. We, we generally see that, you know, the manifestation of it, you know, although it might start around menopause, we usually don't see patients presenting until, you know, they're in their mid-60s. And then if they do have that degenerative scoliosis, it usually progresses at, you know, two to three degrees per year during the 50s to 70s. But then after about the age of 70, we can start to see a more rapid deterioration that in some way mimics that rapid progression that we see in adolescent idiopathic scoliosis. Right. So um, one thing that I noticed that I have some scoliosis patients who uh, you would expect often that their leg length would be different and sometimes you lie them down and do the leg length check and they're spot on even and then others where there's clear asymmetry. Is there any sort of correlation between leg length and uh, scoliosis? In terms of functional leg length, there's no correlation. In terms of structural leg length, there can be. 
Um, particularly when we see a pure lumbar scoliosis or pure thoracolumbar scoliosis. Um, and what's interesting is this can sometimes also be problematic for chiropractors because you see a leg length inequality and a curvature and we may assume that, that it's just because of the leg length. But often you'll have a, a true scoliosis and a true leg length inequality occurring together. And just because you might treat the leg length inequality with a heel lift, for example, doesn't necessarily mean that that's sufficient enough to stop the scoliosis from getting worse. Mm. So when we see the two things together, we often have to treat both together rather than just treating one or treating the other. Uh, the old uh, Gonstead uh, approach for, say, for example, a right structural short leg, if the uh, response in the uh, lumbar spine was that it was... Uh, a curve with its convexity to the right side that a heel lift might be considered appropriate. If the spine went the other way and it was concave to the right side, the thought was that a heel lift might actually make the scoliosis worse. Do you, do you before you put in heel lifts, do you check to see how this changes the, uh, the, the spine or shape? And if you do, how do you do it? Yeah, I think that's a, a good basic understanding of how you might apply a heel lift in a lumbar curvature. Um, the, the understanding of how um, the sacrum morphology um, relates to scoliosis has really um, improved a lot over the last you know, 10 to 15 years. And there's a special type of x-ray that we can take called a modified Ferguson's x-ray. And what that, what that allows is a view of the sacral base, but in the plane of its tilt. So that if you have a sacral base angle of 40 degrees and you take a normal AP lumbar x-ray, you're actually projecting the central ray onto the top of the sacral base and you can't actually see whether it's tilted or not. You can't really understand its morphology. Whereas if we drop the tube down and we take a slight tilt up, about 20 degrees in most cases, we can then actually see the, the tilt of the sacral base and its morphology and how that relates to the leg length because sometimes like in the case that you said where we might have the short leg on the left but the convexity on the right, just looking at the leg is not enough because perhaps we now have some asymmetrical growth of the sacrum that mimics as though we have a right short leg. And sometimes we might need to take that into account too. So just looking at the leg length and the spine, you know, maybe doesn't tell the whole picture if we actually include looking at the sacrum and its morphology um, in a more... Um, structured way, then I think that can even give us a better understanding. Just for our podcast listeners, uh, if you're interested in um, finding out a little bit more about some great ways to determine whether someone has a functional or a structural short leg, I refer you back to the Robert Kupenstein's um, uh, podcast. We did, I did two of those a little while back, Jeb, and they were really some fantastic tips there, like you're giving great tips today. Now, moving along, um, let's get to the management side of things. So uh, perhaps, again, distinguishing between the adolescent uh, and the perhaps older degenerative scoliosis, how do you go about treatment with these people? When do you go conservative? When do you go um, refer out for, or in your case, you're the, you're the brace man, but when do you, would you use braces or, or even contemplate surgery? So that's a really good question. Um, when the curves in children, um, we are fairly confident that they're not that they are idiopathic. There's no um, pathology associated with it. 
and there hasn't been a strong family history. You know, if mum has a scoliosis and she's had surgery and she's she's brought a daughter in and she only has a 15-degree curve, we might be a little more worried about that case and, and keep a closer eye on it. But if there's not that type of history, I think it's safe for chiropractors to treat those curves less than 20 degrees using their traditional methods so long as they're really observant with those cases. And although we always want to try and limit the amount of x-rays that we take in growing children, um, we really do need to use x-ray because it's the gold standard um, at a minimum interval of once every six months if the patient is growing. And I think that's really important. If we do see a scoliosis that's progressing, it's really important not to hold on to it and just continue to do the same treatment. Mm. Because the goal of non-surgical treatment is obviously to avoid surgery. And the, the more quickly we can intervene with stronger treatments, the better the chances are that we can ultimately avoid surgery. And the, the great thing is that nowadays there's lots of different things that can be done. There's a, a new approach to scoliosis physical therapy and scoliosis-specific exercises, um, and there's a, a program that we use in our clinics that's structured and has shown that the curves below 25 degrees um, in control groups, it's actually shown that it stopped those cases from um, progressing. So for smaller curves, we can use specialised rehab. Um, for small curves, sometimes we can use a nighttime brace as well, so the children only have to sleep in it. But then if the curves are starting to get bigger, around 30 degrees, we have to move more towards what many people would think is a traditional type of brace where we brace the torso. But it's very different the way that we approach bracing now. We use a much more three-dimensional approach to the old-fashioned Boston type of brace that many people would be familiar with. So you've actually developed um, you know, uh, the, scholar, uh, the Scully Roll orthotic and the, and the Scully Brace system. Is this this new three-dimensional thing you're talking about? Yeah, so we, we actually, um, I don't know if you remember the Microsoft Connect. It was a, a thing that you use for gaming on a computer. And uh, my uh, wife was actually a computer programmer. And um, uh, before Microsoft put out a developer kit, she managed to hack it and turn it into a 3D scanner. Oh, right. And so we, um, we were using the Microsoft Connect for low-cost 3D scanning. And just to give you some perspective, an uh, orthopedic laser 3D scanner costs about 14000 US dollars and about another $10,000 for the software to make it operate. So you're talking about 30000 Australian dollars compared to uh, initially the Microsoft Connect costs us about $300 and had an accuracy within two millimeters of a, of a laser scanner that cost $30,000. Wow. And so then from that, we developed some programs to run it and do 3D body scanning. And then from the 3D body scanning, um, using CAD-CAM, which stands for computer-aided design, computer-aided manufacture, which means that we can take a virtual scan of a patient, make a mold for them virtually, see how that affects their body posture, um, and understanding how that affects their spine and then send that to the factory which uses a robot to carve it out of 3D and then vacuum form a brace around it. And in using this approach, we actually, we actually find that we can not just hold most scoliosis, but in children in particular, we can usually make some degree of correction, which, you know, in the um, orthopedic and spinal orthotic world is 
almost seen as outrageous that you know the best traditionally for hundreds of years anyone's been able to do is hold the curves but by using a true three-dimensional approach we now have some growing evidence that there is the ability to make correction in in these growing children. In adults, it's a little bit of a different story. You mentioned also earlier about the exercise. Um, is the exercise um, asymmetrical, isometric exercises? Yes, yeah, so it's, it's definitely asymmetric. There are different schools. There's one school called CIAS, which stands for Scientific Exercise Approach to Scoliosis, and that's a school from Italy. They don't use so much um, uh, isometric, they use more over-corrective um, um, type of range of motion exercises. And then there's another school from Germany called Schroth, and they do use more isometric, um, asymmetric exercises. Um, we use a combination of both of those two techniques um, in, in our clinics with the idea of always trying to asymmetrically overcorrect the body posture and obviously the curve. We might make sure again for our listeners that those two um, uh, groups of exercises, or there's some kind of link, so people can follow up and have a look at that as well. I'm assuming you can have you can see that over the internet, can you? Or there's some website about those exercises? Yeah, you can. the The difficulty is it's a training program, so right. Um, you know, you would nearly really need to spend six to twelve hours of coaching with the patient to get them to really understand how those exercises work for them to be effective. It's not the type of thing that you can just tear off a sheet of exercises and give it to the patient, unfortunately. Certainly not, and I'm assuming in your seminars you include this sort of training as well. Yeah, we do an introduction, um, for sure, um, and then for those um, clinicians that want to get more involved in scoliosis um, and that you know have a, a passion and an interest, then certainly there's opportunities to do further training in that area. So for the older group who have the degenerative scoliosis, do you use the bracing for them like you do the younger patients? We do offer bracing, but not in the same way. Um, in older patients, we have to think about the process that's going on there. Essentially, their spine is unstable. They have some degenerative instability. If you were to take a 3D CT scan of many of them, you would actually see that one of those facet joints is almost completely obliterated. So. Essentially, they need scaffolding, and you know, if they have scaffolding on the inside, that's full spinal surgery. Um, if they have scaffolding on the outside, that's a brace. Ideally, it'd be great if we could stabilize it just with you know, core stability and exercise, but no one's been able to show that you can do that at this stage. So, mm. there is a there is a little bit of evidence out there now. Um, there's a, a great paper that was published in the Archives of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation, and they studied a group of papers scoliosis and they studied them for 10 years and they found on average over 10 years they progressed nearly two degrees per year so almost 20 degrees of progression over that period of time they then put a brace on them and by bracing them and they did it for five years they changed that average rate of progression from nearly two degrees per year to 0.2 degrees per year so right. so there is some evidence out there to show that you can do it and the good news from that study was on average, patients only wore the brace four to six hours a day during the day. Whereas with adolescents, you know, for, while they're growing, you really need them wearing it 20 hours plus per day. Mm. So if we were to sum up uh, things, Jeb, what would you say the take-home messages are for chiropractors or other practitioners managing scoliosis patients? I think the take-home message is that whether it's for a child or for an adult, the earlier that it's detected, 
then the better the outcome. Because in children, if we're picking up 20 degree curves, we can often use exercise or nighttime bracing and they'll never end up needing surgery. Or with an adult, for example, if we can pick up a curve that is degenerating and is progressing, we can use a brace for three or four hours a day. And again, they'll not have to end up going having surgery. Our, our motto here in the clinics is the right treatment at the right time. So, mm. you know, whatever treatment it is that they need, you know, they get the right one. And if, you know, any anyone listening is of, um, has any questions or um, queries about any patients, we do offer a free review service for chiropractors where you can send in an x-ray and a, and a brief clinical history. Um, and we'll get back to you and say, look, this is a great case that you can just manage with the tools you have, or maybe they need further investigation, or maybe there's some other treatments that they need. Um, and people can just send an a, a email to review at scollycare.com and we'd be happy to um, help anyone out there that needs our help. Well, that's a, that's a terrific service, and I'm sure um, many chiropractors will probably take you up on that offer. Um, Jeb, it's been fantastic uh, talking with you. I've been try- wanting to do a podcast with you, I know, for, uh, for quite some time. I'm glad we've finally managed to hook up, and I really appreciate your, uh, your expertise and the, and the time you've given to the podcast today. Fantastic. Thanks for your time, and uh, thank you to the CA for organizing the podcast. Well, that's it for me. Uh, Thanks for listening. Go forward with passion and purpose, and I look forward to chatting with you again on our next CAA podcast.